Hello, and welcome to the Rubber Duck Dev Show. I'm Chris. I'm Creston. And tonight, we're going to go through a nice <laughs> chat about the 12 principles behind the Agile Manifesto. So, this is the Agile Manifesto itself. That's pretty short, but the 12 principles behind it. Uh, but before we do that, how was your week? So, pretty busy. I've always been busy. This, I don't know what's going on. I'm like perpetually behind. I have too much work I need need to get done. Not enough time. Um, but I I did run into two things that I thought I would share to folk to focus on. One is I have chosen to use AWS. So my infrastructure runs on AWS. And I'm use I decided to use CloudFront for doing log aggregation that also tracks some metrics and stuff. I'm not 100% happy with it. I probably want to use a different tool, particularly for metrics. But with regard to log aggregation, I ran into just an extraordinarily frustrating phenomenon. Now, what do you guys, or what have you used for log aggregation? Uh, we have used currently use Datadog, have used, um, I just went like, pull an old man mind. Um, crap. Anyway. <laughs> I've never heard of crap. Yeah, well, it <laughs> is. Is that with an exclamation point? <laughs> kind of, yeah. Uh, well, I was using, I was trying to answer a question from four months ago. Grafana. Sorry. <laughs> that that they don't do log aggregation. Oh, want a bit? They don't do it well, but they do it. Well, uh, <laughs> I'm just it sounds saying. Sounds like you're using hammers for saw work, frankly. Uh, but anyway, which is why we don't use it anymore. But yeah. So, I was trying to answer a question from four months ago. Like, did this? What caused this particular thing to get deleted? And I knew exactly what I want to look for. And then I tried to search for it. And that thing just spun forever, the AWS CloudFront doing a search. Hmm. And hours and hours later, I just kicked it to the curb because it was just ridiculous. Then I went onto the server itself and I would have to do multiple servers because they're multiple application servers. And it happened to be just the one that I don't have that many, but I happened to choose the right one, just took all the zip files because I still have four months worth of zip files on the itself because my log rotate uh, zips them up. I transferred all of them to the temp disk, uh, unzipped them, and then I used a simple grep command. And all of that took like somewhere between five and 10 minutes. And I'm like, I can't. Why can I try to just get the simple query to answer a question in CloudFront? And it takes, in the actual runtime, this is five to 10 minutes of me doing stuff to actually get it. But the actual runtime of finding it is, was on the order of seconds <clears throat> to find the answer to my question. So I'm like, yeah, I'm frustrated and I'm going to be looking for something else. <laughs> So, so that's one area. The second area is that I have 
because I deal with a lot of large infrastructures, I kind of built in a lot of, well, people talk about gold plating their code. Well, I gold plated my infrastructure to a certain extent in terms of having multiple redundant paths to, to different things, just to part of it, just to part of it, just to educate my, ed, educate myself and to, uh, you know, consume your own dog food, dog fooding, you know, your own right. dog food type thing. And I said, you know, but I think I could probably reduce costs. And then I was dealing with this nagging problem of poor response times sometimes, meaning if I click refresh just to pull up a simple, uh, go through a Rails action and render a page, like eight out of 10 times it's fast and then two out of 10 times it spins a little bit before it would re render. I'm like, well, what the heck is this? Because it don't say anything like that in development, of course. <laughs> so I simplified every, well, not everything, but I simplified stuff, but I still have redundancy. So I still have multiple application servers and traffic gets redirected between both but I have been able to reduce some network round trips as well as part of this plan was to avoid using T3 instances. So if people who don't use Amazon, T3s are basically burstable insta instances. So I don't know if it's potentially that your neighbors are more noisy or the performance, maybe there's a little bit of a latency to it or, or what it is, but I decided to go with their, either their M, their R, or their C series, which are supposed to be more consistent performance. So I switched, um, the database was already out on one of those, but I switched the application servers to be on those. So I got essentially a little bit larger application servers and consolidated other services on them to, to justify the cost differential. All that to say, I have, if the, cost projections are correct, I have now halved my infrastructure costs. And according to Skylight, I have improved performance by at least 25% and potentially more. Wow. So I don't know. I mean, I think some of the network round tripping maybe some of it, like because I was spread across different availability zones, I still am doing that to a certain extent, but not as much before. Um, but, you know, I mean, my memcached is still across different avail availability zones, but, um, but I'm thinking right now, I, again, I changed a fair amount of the infrastructure, but I think maybe the biggest win was going from a T3 instance to one of their more consistent performance ones, the like either their M, their R, or their C instances. So that was a pretty big win because I'm saving money. And then secondly, better performance. So I'm like, okay, win-win. Less cost, better performance. Gosh, let me think about that for a hot second. Um, yeah, so... Well, I mean, on on the not work front, um, half an hour before the show, I was taking a door off its hinges because the the ten minute job to move a piece of equipment down the hall turned into a one hour impossible job. I had to take my house apart, so that was that was all kinds of fun. 
right before the show. You know what I would have said? I said, yeah, I can't do it. <laughs> well, the problem was we got it halfway done and it was blocking the door. And so then it was like, well, oh my gosh. <laughs> I'm stuck in my room. So either I take the door off or I don't do the show. <laughs> or no show. Okay. So down comes the door. Um, anyway, on the work front, uh, I I actually had kind of a kind of a weird thing that I've, as long as I've been doing testing, as much testing as I've done, I've never run into this before. Um, we had, you know, we, we did the Ruby 3.1 upgrade and the, the part of the Ruby 3 upgrade was the double splat stuff for the parameterized or the, the, the parameter, the named argument stuff, the parameter stuff, right? So mm -hmm. we did all that. We released it to dev. And of course there, somebody out there found an edge case. Things stopped working. So for, for that customer so we rolled back and I took a look at it and it turns out that had a test that exercised that code it went through that code path but it didn't fail on that particular problem because that particular call that was making was mocked in the tests so um, it, it while it went through the right code path because that was mocked, it didn't pick up on the fact that, hey, this needs to be double splatted, so it didn't fail. So that was a that was a nice little bite you in the butt thing. So word of warning, be very careful, especially when you're going, if you're upgrading to Ruby 3 and doing all this double splat stuff, check everywhere that you're doing mocks and stubs in your tests and make sure that those calls are actually exercising the code you think it's exercising. So you don't miss that because that was a that was a tough nut to crack. It's hard to find, you know, eight million lines of test code. A little hyperbolic there, but it's a lot. Um. So, anyway, uh, that was that was the fun of the week. Ooh, <laughs> the dredge of the week. More yeah. like, it's <laughs> is it Friday yet? <laughs> All right, so let's get into the meat of this week. Let us take a look at 12 principles of Agile. Um, hoping chat shows up tonight, but if they don't, just we'll just go anyway. All right, so again, this isn't the actual Agile manifesto. I've got that at the end. I'll show you that, but that's not what we're talking about tonight, not the actual manifesto. We're talking about the 12 principles that they used to come up with the Agile Manifesto. Um, and I, I was kind of curious how many practitioners of Agile have actually looked at this stuff to find out where this came from. Um, my guess would be not a lot, uh, but, you know, we'll see. Tell me, chat, have you ever seen this stuff before? Uh, so, principle number one. Our highest priority is to satisfy the customer through early and continuous delivery of valuable software. Sounds like a no-brainer if you're a business, but I, I see a lot of times that people kind of lose focus of this. They're, they're so, especially programmers, get so focused on, oh, I got to fix this bug. Oh, I gotta, I've got this cool idea for a new feature. Oh, I've got this thing. Oh, I've got to do this thing. And they forget about the whole point of doing this to deliver something to a customer. Um, so 
Yeah, as I was reading through all of these, I think it is beneficial or instructional to remember when this was codified, what software development was like at the time. And you know, you and I can, because we're old, old fogies, not the oldest fogies, but we're old fogies. And essentially when this came out, you know, the waterfall method of software development was in a high amount of use where it was more top-down control and writing down the requirements and following the specifications and things would be structured and then you couldn't change them forever. Right. So I think what's it's it, having that perspective that that's kind of how software development was done. And this was a counter to that method. Yeah. So I, I found this in structure. I was looking through these as, ah, they're phrasing it this way because at the time, mm -hmm. you know, the waterfall method was the one in prevalence, used in prevalence. Yeah. And, and kind of what happened for those of you who are younger and, and kind of newer to the game and weren't around in the, the 80s and 90s when this stuff was, was going on a lot, they looked at software as a, as a production function. And so they took management lessons from other production functions like producing houses in construction or producing widgets on, on, in the factory. And that stuff is a lot easier to put in a waterfall or a Gantt chart because it, it all kind of flows. I have to do, I have to lay the foundation first. Then we have to get the two by fours to build the frames. Then we have, you know, it, there's a, a sequence that that must happen and what they started realizing um you know the people that started working on this stuff was programming is much more fluid than that and it can't every time you try to create a schedule that way with programming it falls apart before you get halfway through it and you spend inordinate amounts of time planning and writing up documentation and stuff and that all goes out the window two or three weeks into the project. And then you've just wasted all that time. So why do that? Let's just plan a week or two ahead uh, and, and you know, not try to get everything flowing up front. Well, I think, actually, I think that that stuff happens with all those other processes you mentioned, building a house. But I'm sure that all the plans come together, all the documentation, and then they build it and they're like, this isn't what we want. You know, I'm sure that happens everywhere else, but the, the advantage that software has, which the principles talk about, which I find interesting is that software can be different, meaning that you can build the smallest functional thing and just have it work and show it to someone. Whereas when you say, hey, I built the room of the house, isn't it great? Do you want to live in this room? And then I'll build on the red, it, you know, it's not really done that way. Right. Here, I built, I built a chimney. Huzzah. Yeah. We can stop is this now, the right? Chimney, is, is this the chimney that you want? Do you want it to be bigger or smaller? I, I can't. I, yeah. I don't know. What does the room look like around it? <laughs> exactly. So I think software is a little bit more malleable to be able to follow this type of technique 
Right, exactly. And and the other thing, too, is that, as you said, the decomposable parts mm -hmm. of software can actually have business value, whereas the decomposable parts of a lot of other production processes really don't. Um, hey, Colin, welcome to the show, man. Howdy. Daughter's dance class, huh? Fun. Showing them how it's done. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I, I think because, and I've always looked at programming as just as much art as science. So I think that, um, I, you know, I think that there has to be a lot more malleability there and it just has to flow differently because I remember working on waterfalls and and all you know getting everything prepped ahead of time and all the all the paperwork and stuff and and you know if if somebody programmed something you'd go back and check it against the original spec and make sure that you know and and I'm not against specking things out you have to understand where your finish line is but you know deciding where every piece of gravel goes on the gravel road is just not a good way to program <laughs> It's it's ahead of time anyway. But anyway, this you know got to deliver stuff to satisfy customers. That's the point. Uh, number two, welcome changing requirements even late in development. Agile processes harness change for the customer's competitive advantage. Again, this is a customer focused principle. Um, and don't fight against your customers. If they come up with a good idea, say, huh, cool. Let's let's try to work that in. You know, it's it's their your customers are the ones that are using this stuff. Um so you know, don't don't poo-poo their ideas. They know their market. Yeah. And and that also means that if even if you had grand plans to build the Taj Mahal, they may say, oh, no, we need to take it in a different direction and go this way. Then you have to accept that and, you know, follow their lead. Right. And honest, I mean, even if you're selling, if you're developing stuff for end users, you know, it's not a B2B thing you're doing. You're doing a, a um, developing for end users and selling directly it's still their problem that you're trying to solve. And if they tell you what their problem is and it's not what you had anticipated, you need to be able to move to what their problem is or find a different audience, one of the two. But it, it's all about the customer. And number three, deliver working software frequently from a couple of weeks to a couple of months with a preference to the shorter time scale. Um, so this... This is, I mean, you kind of touched on this earlier, is, is small, deliverable things that have value by themselves. Um, and that was a radical shift to, um, one of the big radical shifts in this, this paradigm against the kind of waterfall model. Because when we used to program like that, it was, we couldn't sell anything until the whole thing was done. We didn't have anything really usable. Until the whole thing was done, or at least we may have had something usable, but nobody was looking at that going, hey, I could sell this bit. Now let's start with this. Nobody was looking at it that way. 
They just waited till it was all done. So you would have one or two year mono, huge programming projects that were nothing but money sinks. So money pit. Yeah. So this was a huge shift in kind of how management started looking at programming projects and saying, hey, we can monetize things along the way. Which and is, the advantage and the key advantage of deliver something frequently is that you get quick feedback. So you know immediately, oh, don't go down this way, you know, as opposed to you're laying the foundation and you suddenly discover you you're eight feet too short on one end or, you know, whatever right. analogy you want to use. Yeah. And, and it also makes your customers happier because they're not sitting there wondering for six months, Hey, what's going to happen here? They're like every week or two, they're, they're seeing progress saying, well, this isn't a hundred percent of where I want to go, but there's some progress. So I'm happy. So that makes a big difference. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, and, and of the two of us, he's the slow talker. So look out, you know, because if I get going. Uh, number four, business people and developers must work together daily throughout the project. This is one of the, this is one that I still have a lot of problems implementing. This is really hard. Um, one of the biggest one of the biggest hurdles is just the kind of the language barrier. Most people on the business side don't understand programmerese. And we're typically not very good at translating to English. So you kind of get this, this mismatch of language. Um, and it's, it's just really hard to do this. It's important, but it's really hard. And it's something that I still struggle with. So for me, I don't really have the difficulty with the communication or speaking that way. I mean, maybe it's because, you know, I own a business, so yeah. I understand the dollars and the cents. Also, you know, a lot of my background, I wasn't all just computers and stuff. I mean, I was, you know, leading the team of people. and But I think with regard to this principle, the hardest one is actually getting the, I, I'm sure in the environment, there's developers that don't want that interface. So they need to be told, hey, you got to work together daily on the project. I think that's one problem. But another problem is the focus of business people. So I think it can be quite hard to get the focus of the business people to say, hey, pay attention to this project. Is it delivering what you, because they are so busy you know, hair on fire, running around, doing all the things they need to do, and then having to dedicate their time to keep things on track is hard. I've actually been unblocked by a non-technical business person before, which was surprisingly nice. Really, Colin, that's, that is surprising. I mean, it happens, uh, but yeah, that's, that is surprisingly nice. It doesn't happen that often. And honestly, my take is that Modern technical project managers are supposed to sit in this space. This is where they're most valuable because they should be the ones that can speak both languages and help translate that. Um, because, as you said, one of the other issues is business people and software engineers have much different interests. The business people are interested in winning 
sales and talking to customers and they do all the front facing stuff. That's their interest. That's why they're in that role. That's what they like to do. Engineers are more interested in the art and science of writing code and figuring out problems and solving puzzles. So the, the interest, they're not competing interests, but they're just different interests for the same problem. And getting those to look at each other is sometimes is difficult. Like you said, it's just, I'm, I'm looking over here. I don't have time to look at your bit. Yeah. <clears throat> Uh, number five, build projects around motivated individuals. Give them the environment and support they need and trust them to get the job done. Uh, this is, this is, as I was going through these, this one stuck out to me as the most important one now. Um, and what I've seen is, the more that I start trusting junior developers and the more responsibility I hand to junior developers and, and others in the on the team, the more they'll actually do because they feel trusted and empowered. So, um, of course, there are exceptions to that rule. There's always somebody that's going to try to take advantage of it and be a jerk, but... For the most part, people who have the jobs want the jobs, and they like the jobs, and they want to be doing this stuff, and they want to learn new things about it. So let them do it. I think this is probably, again, the rails, the rail against um, that top-down control of the waterfall model. <laughs> so it's basically they like the sense of the empowerment, you know, to, to go ahead and get the job done independently and not have someone lording over them and say, thou must do it this way. Right. Yeah, Colin, as a junior, I agree. Yep. And, and honestly, I think that's better for their business because junior programmers are typically much hungrier about learning than senior programmers are. We've already done all this stuff, you know, we've been there and we get a little jaded and grumpy and old and stuff. But letting the the, the new blood and the new energy and, and stuff like that um, really, I think, is better for the business because the junior developers, they, they, they've got a lot to learn. They want to learn. They're jazzed about it. They're excited about this new thing. You know, they're not burnt yet. <laughs> um, you know, and I... I I know what that feels like because I got to a point of burning out and I had to take a break from programming for a couple of years. Um, but, you know, I think it's it's good for the business to do stuff like that, you know? But let the people that are hungry chase the food, right? Plus, they're younger and have a lot more energy than, than the old farts. So... Uh, number six, the most efficient and effective method of conveying information to and within a development team is face-to-face -face conversation. Oh, COVID, you just broke the hell out of this one. Oh. See, of all the things COVID caused problems with, this, number six, that was the one. Broke my heart. Uh, the good news is technology kind of kept that from being a real problem. Face-to-face 
doesn't have to be in the same room. Zoom is kind of face-to-face. -face. Although I will say, it is... I. I do still like to have meetups with people and get in the same room. Yeah, there's been a lot of communication studies, not re relative to programming, but you know the amount of information that's lost when you go from strictly written word, well, let's take it from face-to-face, -face, and then you've got to drop off when you're talking about video conferencing, Zoom, and then you got to drop off when you're talking about just a phone conversation, and then the drop off when you're talking about writing. So face to face is the way to go to minimize miscommunication, and it just goes downhill from there. Yeah, for sure. I mean, face to face in the same room, physically face to face, is the optimal way to for for some communications. Like for brainstorming sessions on a whiteboard, nothing better than a big old whiteboard in a room with four or five developers just writing crap all over the whiteboard. I love that. That's the best brainstorming sessions in the world are that way. Um, and, you know, while there are kind of virtual whiteboard technologies, it's just not the same, it, yeah. you know? Yeah, not the same. So, uh, you know, there is a lot to be said for co-location when you're talking about some things, but... It's not as bad as it was, you know, in the in the 90s when if you weren't co-located, you were talking on a phone. Yeah. And usually that was a wired phone hanging on a wall in your house. You know, so it's a lot different time. So Zoom is adequate when you can't do anything else, but it's still preferable to be co-located. A lot of benefits to that. <laughs> the 90s were the best? Um, I mean, okay. <laughs> There's, I suppose. I mean, I graduated high school in 91, so I was adult enough through most of it to, to kind of go, ah, well, that was all right. <laughs> uh, number seven, working software is the primary measure of progress. Yes, Folks, delivery is a feature. Delivery is the feature. If you don't deliver anything, the, the, the quality of your code means nothing. So, I mean, you can spend years making your code pretty, but if it's not making money from a non-academic standpoint, from a business standpoint, if it's not making money, it's worth nothing. Yep. So I think this one's fairly self-explanatory. Delivery is a feature. Number eight, agile processes promote sustainable development. The sponsors, developers, and users should be able to maintain a constant pace indefinitely. Okay, I have a couple of minor issues with this. Indefinitely is a big word. Nobody can maintain constant pace indefinitely. I don't I think that was a, a little too ambitious um well i think or, i know i think i know, have a feeling why they wrote it this way yeah i mean <laughs> i guess as a whole the 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 entire process group should be able to maintain but the way they worded it feels like hey each individual person ought to be able to go forever you know you, you got to take a vacation once in a while. 
But I think what they're getting after is you should have things set up in a, such a way that if somebody takes a vacation, it does things don't just stop. Uh, question about number seven. Should that be at the cost of not writing tests in order to ship faster? Pretty sure I know that. Well, you know that answer from me. No. Uh, you don't sacrifice test quality to ship faster. Shipping, okay, fast isn't necessarily the best thing. You have to deliver, but you have to deliver quality. Delivering garbage is worthless too. Um, so no, you shouldn't, shouldn't. Here's your new software package. It crashes five times a day, but other than that, it's great. Right. Yeah. Oh, we'll, we'll this will be a hot seller. Mm-hmm. So yeah, no, you don't sacrifice tests for that. Tests are part of the development process. I mean, that's, it's part of it. Um, yeah, it usually works. Works on my machine. God, I can't tell you how many times I've heard that. Can't tell you how many times I've said that. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. It works on my machine. Um, must Early be an ID10T problem. Early on with the Rails, that was a real frustration because everything would work in development and you pushed it to like, well, like staging. And it's like, what's wrong with my assets? You know, the whole asset migration or, you know, that whole yeah. thing. Oh. Oh yeah, yeah. early Rails asset pipelines were. Oh. oh yeah, yeah. I digress. God. Um. Now, with regard to number eight here, what I think they're talking about, and what they were again, a lot of these I see them as railing against the status quo at the time, is thinking about crunch, meaning that. Okay, you're you're working at a regular pace. Maybe you're a little slow, but okay, here are the requirements. You write them out or whatever, and then suddenly the clock has run out. There's no more budget. We got to hurry up and get this thing done. And now people are pulling all-nighters and working like crazy. So it's not feast famine is the wrong word, but basically they're doing more than sprinting, and then they're falling down tired. It's like, oh, that was terrible, you know. This is essentially what game development is still today. Right. There's, you know, you're cruising along, okay, but then stuff hits the fan, you got to finish it up, and then there's massive crunch working 60, 80 hour a week, whatever they do. Then they release the product, and then everybody goes, uh, you know, and, and rest. So I think they're wanting to, that was, I think, still something that could happen in the waterfall development, you know, years ago and they were basically fighting against that and why they came up with this principle that's what i see when i what i think about when i read this yeah the the triple a game dev uh companies really and i think a lot of it has to do with the fact that they they advertise their release date and then say okay get it done by then and they're like uh wait what I mean, that's the whole reason that the worst video game ever developed exists. Whoever played the Atari ET game. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that tends to happen, I think, maybe more so in enter the entertainment industry because, you know, or I mean, maybe even just general B2C businesses because, you know, there's a lot of business that gets done around the holiday season, you know, end of the year, or if there's something that is more seasonally focused, you got to get it done by that 
if they're software related to summer in some fashion, well, you got to get done by a particular time. To a point, yeah. But the the you know one of the big benefits that non-development things, a lot of non-development things have, is that in a lot of cases you can just throw money at it and help that. That doesn't work most of the time with development. If I was in a crunch and my boss said, hey, look, here's four new developers for you. You should be able to do it now. Well, no, that's actually going to slow me down because now I have to train them, show them the code base, get them up to speed and stuff. That's actually going to make my problem worse. So, um, you Read know. Read the mythical man month, kids. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, you know, I I think what started happening in the 90s is people started realizing that code development is not a normal development, product development type process. It's much different than a lot of other things um, that that do successfully use waterfall model. And there's nothing wrong with waterfall model in and of itself. It was just a bad application of project management for software development. It wasn't the appropriate way to do it. We started to discover. I say we, meaning not me. People way smarter than me discovered that. I wasn't thinking about this at that point. Um, okay, number nine. Continuous attention to technical excellence and good design enhances agility. In other words, keep your technical debt under control. I mean, that's... And that also will help with eight, maintaining a consistent pace. Right. If you keep your technical debt under control. And what's the best way to keep your technical debt under control? Right. I don't know. Tests. <laughs> Have a good <laughs> test suite so that not only do you make sure that you don't regress things, but that you're confident and and able to refactor along the way without being worried that, oh my God, if I touch this line of code, the world may end. So you can't do that without tests. Tests actually help reduce your technical debt by quite a bit. So have tests, kids. Number 10, simplicity. Yay! The art of maximizing the amount of work not done is essential. So basically, be a lazy-ass programmer. Wait, no, that's not right. <laughs> I, what there, what this came to be termed is Yagni. You ain't going to need it. Don't program crap you aren't going to need. It may, it may be the best idea in the world, but if the customer never uses it, it's a waste of time. So what you think it should do is irrelevant. It's what the customer needs it to do. Um, so don't do stuff that's not essential. And one of my bosses in the past used to, his favorite phrase was, you have to keep it Crayola crown simple. If a six-year-old can't figure it out, you've made it too complicated. Yeah, Drew, and don't guess what you'll need. We're bad guessers. That's for sure. Um, I, I've done that so many times. Oh, this would be great. Let me let me program this. And then I take it to product, and they're like, what the hell would I use this for? This is what? I don't need this. 
Ah, crap. I just spent a week on that. Uh, number 11. The best architectures, requirements, and designs emerge from self-organizing teams. I love this. This is, when I do project management, I, I like to just kind of, I like to step into a project management role as I'm just the guy that's in charge of getting blockers out of the way, but the team is in charge of organizing their works workflow, right? So when it, the reason that works best is because when everybody buys into the idea, when, when an idea contains parts from everybody on the team, they tend to push it forward instead of resisting it. So, you know, don't hand down the dictums from one high. That's just going to get resistance because humans are humans. Say, okay, everybody puts their ideas in. Let's craft the best thing out of all these ideas from what you guys think. And then let's carry that forward. That works way better. Um... All right, yeah, so, more to say about that. Number 12, at regular intervals, the team reflects on how to become more effective, then tunes and adjusts its behavior accordingly. This is incredibly important. This is the, um, not post-mortem, that's, that's kind of looking at the end of a project. Um, we call these, we do them every two weeks. Um, I'm having a bad brain day. Whatever. Anyway, um, you know, this is where the, the teams get it's together. A, it's a retrospective. Retrospective. Thank you. Okay. Holy crap. Yes. <laughs> um, and these are usually, I mean, you should have these on a regular basis. It's not usually like at the end of a sprint. We do it at the end of every other sprint because you know, we'd have like a one hour retrospective because we get all the different teams together into this retrospective. It's not per team. Um, and doing that every sprint would just be too much. But, you know, we, we talk about, okay, what went well? Everybody lists out what went well. What can we do better? What were the problems we had? And then we pick, you know, we all vote on those. And the top three, here are the problems we need to work on, are what we work on for the next two weeks. And then we do that process again. And since we started doing that, uh, we have made massive improvements in attitudes, in morale, in processes, in the amount of work we're able to, to put out, uh, in the amount of knowledge that's exchanged. Those things are incredibly important. So if you're not doing retrospectives, you really ought to think about them. They're not hard to do. They don't typically take very long. Ours take an hour because we've usually got 30 people on there. Um, but, you know, most most times you do in retrospectives, it's on a team, so you get somewhere between five and ten people. You can do them in half an hour. And there are programs out there that do this online for you. We use a program called Retro, R-E-E-T-R-O, um, that facilitates that. But, um, yeah, I, I mean, those things have made a huge impact on our productivity, our morale. Um you know, it's it's just been really, really good. So, 
if you're not doing that in your team, I would highly encourage you to bring that up. Project manager. Manager? Manager. Hi, English. I'm Chris. Nice to meet you. Uh, project manager. Um, if you are the project manager, start doing it. Really easy. Um, your, your programmers will thank you. I promise. So, um, so those are the 12 principles that they use to craft the Agile Manifesto. And the Agile Manifesto is actually this. And you can find all this stuff at agilemanifesto.org. Um, but basically, there's the individuals and interactions over processes and tools. So when you have both of those, prefer the one on the left. Working software over comprehensive documentation. Oh, God, yes. Do your documentation after the fact, not before. Customer collaboration over contract negotiation. Yes. The more fluid your customer could be, the easier this gets. Responding to change over following a plan. So, and what they say is while there's value in the stuff on the right, there's more value in the stuff on the left. So they're not saying don't use processes. and They're saying don't use them at the expense of individuals and interactions. Go the other way. Um, so that's, that's the... Hi, coffee. That's the Agile Manifesto. And the, the 12 principles that, that brought it to life. Um, and I would encourage people to, um, kind of maybe print those out and hang them in front of their computer so you can look at them from time to time. It's really good to get your head into that space, uh, because it's not a space that, that software engineers typically think in. They're thinking about problem solving and, and puzzle manipulation and coding, they're not thinking about how does this fit into the group and the business and how do how do I relate to the customer? Because a lot of times software engineers don't relate to the customers. They don't have any interaction with them. So they kind of get get put, kind of put in their white tower and and isolated from the customers. So having this in front of you to think it think about it on a regular basis kind of helps you focus your efforts to what is going to be best for the business and what's going to be best for the team. All right. So any final thoughts on that from you? I don't think so. All right. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed that. We thank you for coming and chatting with us. Uh, if you did enjoy that, please mash that like button. Also, don't forget to subscribe so that you know when we go live. Uh, also, seeing subscriptions come into my inbox makes me feel all warm and fuzzy inside. Uh, if you want to help the channel, the best thing you can do is tell all your beautiful friends about it because you're beautiful people, and I know you have lots of beautiful friends. Uh, so make sure to invite them on Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, next time we will be doing another surprise show because we haven't figured it out yet. But if you want to know what it is ahead of time, you can follow us on at Ducky Dev Show on Twitter. And I'll let you know as soon as we figure it out. We will probably be having some 
uh, some more guests uh, that I've put out a kind of a, a call for recommendations of people you'd like to see on the show. So um, now if you know people, just throw them our way, give us some contact info, and we will reach out to them and try to get them on the show. Uh, we've got a few people that are starting to line up, so we'll see how that works out. Um, but anyway, it's a lot of fun. I love this topic. Fun, fun stuff. Uh, and we will see you next Wednesday at 8 p.m. Eastern time. And until then, happy programming. Happy programming. <laughs>